So, um, so I called Dave and I was like, hey, is there anybody at all that you can recommend? And um, literally the first person, he said, you got to call Quentin Ayers. He's like, if he wants to do it, man, he's like, he's young, but he is very mature for his age. How old are you now? 22. And um, just a baby, right? Oh, some of you older ones. And, um, and so we brought Quentin in. We were just really impressed with his maturity. Um, and we, you know, really like Leslie. Let's just be honest. That, that's really what, what set him over the edge. A great wife. Um, but Quentin, and I've told him this, the, the last four months, I have just been so impressed with his, um, the job he's put in, just the, the amount of just heart he puts into what he wants to do. He wants to, to, to create the, just the best youth ministry possible here at RE3. And um, I'm just really, really just falling in love with, with Quentin and Leslie both. And I'm really glad that they're here. And, um, but I told him one of the requirements is you got to speak, right? And so we get to put on our American Idol hats today. You didn't know this, but he's going to preach, and then we're all going to critique him. And uh, we can, so everybody get and take notes. And um, yeah. <laughs> No, we won't do that. They'll send it to me, and we'll talk tomorrow. Um, but, we'll, but Quentin is going to come up and share. I am really excited um, for the word that he's going to share today. He's going to continue our series that we started last week. And um, so without further ado, Quentin, come on up. Hello? 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 Oh, there it is. Uh, hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you, Mike, for really setting the bar really low for me this morning. Uh, no, but we... Like you said, this is my first time ever preaching here at Re 3 This is my second time ever preaching, ever, um, in my life. So I thought, you know, we're in this, this series, this Advent series, and I thought when they gave me the love aspect, the love category, I thought they were really giving me a softball, just one to knock out of the park, because, I mean, no one's ever done a sermon on love before. Um, but, but I realized through kind of digging into this and the Christmas story and um, God's love, that there's so much more there than we, than we even realize. And they're so intertwined, they're so connected, more than we could, um, more than we, we usually ever grasp. I mean, I would, I would say they're so inseparable, it's like peanut butter and jelly. I mean, I love a good peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I love it. And I'm a firm believer that you cannot have one without the other. If you just have a peanut butter sandwich, then good for you. I mean, you're healthier. But I think there's some sadness inside there because I think you're missing... I think you're missing the sweetness of jelly. And you just have a jelly sandwich. I mean, if you just wake up one morning and decide to put jelly in between two pieces of bread, you need some serious psychological help. I mean, you, there, there's a sociopath growing in there because that worries me. I think you've got to have them together. And I'm just saying that because you cannot have a full conversation about God's love. and You cannot have a full conversation about the Christmas story without the other. And so we see this in Matthew 1. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. It's one of the two accounts of Jesus' birth. Now, I'm using the um, ESV version. I think the NIV version might pop up, but it also is the same thing. So it says this. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to, Je- to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, the prophet being Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. 
All right, let's pray. God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this morning where we can learn more about your love. We can learn more about your son. We can learn that you are God and you are who you say you are. You are consistent with your love and your grace and your power. And let us just fall back and rest in that. Let us come away with a deeper and greater understanding of you this morning. Amen. So when I have youth group and when we, when we get into passages and stuff, the very first question I ask is, what is the context? I ask three questions. We'll get to the last two questions later at the end. But the first question I ask is, what is the context? And so we talk about the context then. See, every gospel writer was writing to convince their audience of something different. And Matthew's audience was Jewish believers. So he was writing to convince Jewish believers that the Messiah they'd been hearing about since the prophets, since even before the prophets, all the way back in Genesis, that, that, that Jesus was that Messiah. And I think he had one of the tougher goals of any of the gospel writers because he had to convince people who were already believers to try to change their worldview, to add on to it, and to realize that Jesus was the Messiah. And you know he's doing that because he talks about, earlier in the chapter, he talks about the genealogy of Abraham, and they would have got the connections with that. He talks about um, the, the customs, like he's the only one that mentions the divorce custom. And he also talks about the prophecy. And you see, they had expectations. And we have expectations too. We have expectations all the time, especially during this time of year. We actually, I think, love having expectations. I think if you watch anything on TV ever, you're going to have this expectation through a commercial that you're going to be driving a Lexus on Christmas <laughs> up a mountain or celebrating Toyota-thon or happy Honda days in your own way. Um, but we have these expectations. A lot of time, they're unrealistic or they're just, they're these hyper-realistic where maybe we could get something like that, but not exactly. And so they had these big grand expectations too. The only difference is the expectations that the Jewish audience had they were realistic because they were being fulfilled by the God that saved their people before, that brought them to the promised land, that had done all these things for them, that they knew through the Old Testament was who he says he was. And so they had all these expectations for a Savior. And now Matthew was just trying to rock their world and show them that Jesus was that Savior. So that was the context then. Now we have the context now. We talked about the context in our own lives in the Christmas story. And I believe that we are very, we're on the complete opposite side of that. We are so familiar with the Christmas story and Jesus loves you. We have heard both those things so many times that we've almost become desensitized to them. It's like this. It's like if you moved into a new neighborhood and you were walking your dog and you um, went down this one street and you saw this beautiful rose garden, beautiful, the most beautiful garden you've ever seen in your whole entire life. I mean, it just floors you. You just stop in your tracks. You get so excited about it. You take your family there the next day. I mean, every time you walk by for a week, you just stop and just stare at it. But then what happens? A couple weeks later, you're walking by and you're like, Oh, there's the garden. Nice, nice. And, you know, you stop for a second, and then you eventually just keep walking a couple weeks later, and you're just looking, and then you just keep going, and then eventually you don't look at it anymore. You just keep on walking right by. Now, just because you've become super familiar with the rose garden, does that make it any less beautiful? No, it doesn't. But that's what's happened with us. We've become desensitized to the beauty of God's love in the Christmas story. And so what I would urge you guys today and through this whole series is to take a step back to take a step back and think about how awesome this story really is. Because a lot of times we forget that. And I think what will help remedy that is if we put feet to it. If we really say, not only does God love you, but this is how he loves you. This is how he loved Joseph and Mary then, and this is how he loves us now. And I see that in two main ways. The first way is I think that Jesus shows his love through the giving of his son, through giving. He gives his son. Now, that means a lot for us. That means way more than we usually think it does. That means that we now have an opportunity to share 
in a loving relationship with God. And that's kind of a big deal because if you look in 1 John, it talks about how God is love. And that God was, was love before the creation of anything. And God was loving before the creation of anything. And you think to yourself, well, that's kind of weird. What was he loving before there's anything to love? Himself? And I would say, yeah, he was loving himself. And you might think, oh, well, that's kind of selfish, kind of self-indulgent. But the Bible talks about the Godhead, the Trinity. Three and one, he talks about the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And they're all loving each other. Tony Evans calls it a Trinitarian love fest um, that they were having before the creation of the world. And they're still having this day. The only difference is now that they're giving you a chance to be a part of it. And you don't deserve that chance. There's nothing about us that is worthy of being a part of this Trinitarian love fest. But we so often, through traditionalism or whatever it be, think that we're entitled to this love, but we're not. God, the Trinity, is not a battery pack recharged by your love. You need their love. And they let you be a part of that. That's why he sent his son so you can be a part of that relationship. He makes the unworthy worthy, the unlovable lovable. Another thing he gives is he gives us a chance. <laughs> he gives us a chance at redemption. Once again, something we don't deserve. The sending of his son, he gives us a chance. He gives us a chance of eternity with him. You see, upon Adam's sin, the earth groaned and cried out for a savior. And then God meets this need by sending out his son. And Jesus, as a baby, cried out for his mother. And then 30 years later, Jesus cried out on the cross in torment and pain and suffering so that eventually we can cry out in heaven, right to his face, the praises of his name. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. But it's only good news because there's bad news, because we are sinful. But now we have a chance. And the last thing he gives us, I see through this, is he gives us a willingness. That's how Jesus shows his love, willingness. Jesus showed his love through a willingness, a willingness to come, to humble himself, to be 100% man, 100% God, but to live the life of a baby, a teenager, an adult, to do all this and then down the cross. There's a willingness to that, and that is love. And it came at a cost. You know, Jesus and God, they knew the end of the story. They had seen the credits before the movie even started. They knew how it was all going to end. And yet they still chose this. And they chose this for you. And so if you're here today and you're feeling unworthy, if you're feeling lovable, unlovable, God says you are worthy. God says you are lovable at the cost, the cost of his son. How much do you think that must have cost God to send his son? How much do you think that must have cost Jesus to go through that type of pain? And he did it for you. And not because anything in yourself makes you worthy, but because God, who he is, makes you worthy. And so that's what I see God giving. And now we're at, we're at like the mountaintop right now. I mean, we, we're kind of feeling good about ourselves. You know, we're like, oh, we're worthy. Now I'm going to take you a little bit to the valley. Because God also shows his love through the taking. Through taking. You see, if you read through the Christmas story here and then Luke, he took from Mary and Joseph. He took their reputations. He took their comfort. And a lot of times we glance over that. Because what he gives is so astronomically greater than what he takes. And we, we see that. We say, oh, this is what he gave in the Christmas story. This is what he takes. But in our own lives, we're like, we're, we're thinking about ourselves. We're like, oh, God's kind of like taking this, and he's only really giving this. <laughs> you know, uh, God has taken so much from us, especially now, especially during COVID. And I think that God takes out of love as well. And before we really get into this conversation, we have to get something straight. God does not change. Four simple words. God does not change. I'm going to say one more time. Repeat after me. God does not change. 
Very good. Very good. Make sure you guys are still awake. But you got to understand that. And God is love, and God's been love since the beginning, and God does not change. So remember that when we're talking about the taking. Because why do things get taken from us? You know, I think one reason things are taken from us is because we're distracted. We're so distracted. You know, Leslie and I, we got married earlier this year, um, right in the end of March. So, you know, things were going on in the world. And uh, we had this awesome, awesome wedding plan. Uh, we had this venue we loved. We had caters we love. All our friends and family are going to be there. It's going to be awesome. Well, it didn't happen like that. Um, instead, we, had, we, we pushed it a week early so we could just make sure we did it. We had just our, our parents and uh, the minister. We did it at the camp that, that I was living at and interning at there. We had sandwiches for our meal, and then we just bounced. I mean, <laughs> that was our wedding. And I think it was perfect. I think it was perfect because it was about what it was supposed to be about. It was about our covenant in front of God. But what happens so often is with weddings, and if you've been married, you probably know this, um, is that you add all these things to it, all these secondary things. And sometimes the wedding doesn't become about what it's supposed to become about. Sometimes it's all about, what are we eating? Where are we dancing? What's the venue look like? You set her aunt with who? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like all these things. And, and that's not what the wedding's about. But that happens so often in our own lives that these distractions are taken out. We, we, we build these distractions in our lives, these things we care about that we love, and they just get in between our relationship with God. And then we get upset when they're taken away. But see, J.I. Packer has this awesome quote. He says, God so longs for a relationship with you that he is willing to send both joy and sorrow into your life so that your hands may loosen on the things of this world. God so longs for a relationship with you. But as a loving parent, he's not afraid to take away, to get you to love what he loves. He took Mary and Joseph's comfort, their reputation, for his plan to, to um, elevate his message, elevate his son, his love. God's not afraid to do that. But he's not doing it because he hates you. He's doing it because he loves you, because God is love and God does not change. That's what it all comes back to. Another thing that he'll take is he might take what you think your identity is. He might take what you think your identity is. You see, God plunged his holy, clean, heavenly hands into the mud to pull you out of it. And you're just still dripping in mud. And now he is wiping away. But some of this mud, you're just clinging onto. It's just hardened and you're just clinging onto it. Parts of your old life, you're just holding onto it. And sometimes he has to use a chisel to get you to let go of that. And it hurts and it's painful. What are you holding on to? See, God's not afraid to break the hand of his child who's holding on to something that's hurting them. God's not afraid to take your job, to take every cent in your bank account if your job is your God. God's not afraid to take your relationships if your relationships are your God. God's not afraid to humiliate you if your pride, if your reputation is your God. And all of that is not out of hate. It's not because he's jealous. It's because he loves you, and he wants you to love what he loves. You see, if you're a parent, I, hope you, I, hope you, I think you get this. If you're a parent, I think you get this. Because if your child is running after a ball like into the road and stuff, and there's traffic coming, you reach out and you pull them back, and you dislocate their shoulder, I mean, yeah, that hurts, but you just saved their lives. And is that worth it? Yeah, I would think so. I would think that as a parent, you, that would be completely justifiable to you. And God's doing the same with you. Are you running out into traffic chasing something that's really just going to kill you? I mean, but, but we, we don't have that perspective enough. Instead, we're just thinking about the pain. 
We're thinking about how we're hurting. We think that God's punishing us because he hates us. He might just be punishing or disciplining or taking from you because he loves you. Spurgeon has this quote. It's an awesome quote. He says, God is too good to be unkind. God is too wise to be confused. If I cannot trace his hand, then I know that I can trace his heart. Joseph and Mary did not know the end of the story. Joseph and Mary did not see, they had, they had no idea about the miracles, about the resurrection, about the church. They didn't know any, about any of that. But yeah, they were just tracing God's heart. They were faithful to God's heart. And that's the way I think we respond. So we see God loving through his giving. We see God loving through his taking. Now we respond by falling. By love, we fall. And I, I know what you guys think when you hear that. You think, fall in love. And I'm not talking about falling in love, like a Hallmark movie where the girl is like, she's a big business associate, and then she comes back to the small town, and it turns out there's her best friend, and then he's actually a lumberjack, but he's also a secret millionaire. And then uh, he has a dog, and they kiss under a Christmas tree. That's not the type of falling in love I'm talking about. Uh, I'm not talking about that falling in love. I'm not talking about the falling in love where your youth group guys see a bunch of girls in a park and you don't let them go talk to those girls and then you become the killer of love. I'm not talking about that kind of falling in love. I'm talking about in love falling like a child um, is caught by their father when they, or their mother when, when they go down a slide. I'm talking about that. I'm talking about falling where you're being caught. Because, and I was going to call this section like God is actively catching, but he's not actively catching because that's who he is. He's never taken his arms away. He's not, that is, God is catching because that's who he is and who he says he is. God is love. Now it's up to you to let go, to let go. You see, at camp, we did this thing called a trust fall. Uh, it was like the first day that they got there. Um, we did a trust fall, and what you do is you get on a picnic table about yay high, and you stand backwards, and you fall into the arms of your, of your cabin, and the counselor would always go first. And we'd have other adults. It'd be really safe. Don't worry. And um, we would do it like that. And then each kid would go. Each, each student would go. And they would fall as well. And I would always ask them at the end of that, I'd say, did you just do a blind trust fall? And they'd be like, yeah. And I'd be like, no, you didn't. It wasn't a blind trust fall because you saw me do it. You saw these other people before you do it. And at any time, you could look back and saw the arms you were being caught with. That's the same with God not necessarily a blind trust fall because you have the evidence. You have the evidence here. You have the evidence in your own life. Joseph and Mary, an angel visited Joseph and Mary had those interactions with Elizabeth. It wasn't a blind trust fall. Now, they didn't know how the story ended, so they were still tracing the, the heart of God. But they were just falling into the evidence he had given. We are presented with the greatest evidence of salvation every year. But yet we still struggle to fall. We still struggle to let go. I just urge you guys to rest in the consistency. Rest in the consistency of who God says he is, of God's love. Whether things are being given to you, whether things are being taken from you, realize this is not your story. It's his story. And so, you know, I talked about I asked the youth three questions at the, at the beginning, and we already talked about the first one, the context. Well, here's the second one. I asked them, after talking about the context and the content of this book, what do we learn about God? It's simple. It really is. It's simple, yet immensely deep. We learn that God does not change. So whether he is giving or taking, he is actively, actively choosing to love the unworthy, to love the unlovable. 
And then the third question, the final question, is what is the, con- what is the context and what I've learned about God, how does that factor into what now I know about myself? And I know about myself now that I need to fall into the love of God and be swept off my feet once again by the Christmas story and his grace and his love. I need to once again allow my breath to be taken away by the awesomeness and the glory of God. And right now during COVID, I know you might be feeling isolated. You might be feeling abandoned. But God told Hosea, Hosea 2, that he abandoned Israel so that Israel could go from calling him master to calling him husband. God is always longing for a deeper relationship with you, no matter how isolated you might feel. Now, we come away with a greater appreciation of that this year, this Christmas season, and potentially for the rest of our lives. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this time where you can just come learn about you, learn about your love, learn about what you did because you so longed for a relationship with us. God, let us know our worth based not on our values or what we can do, but by who you are and what you've already done. God, let us rest in the consistency of your faithfulness and let us fall back into your loving arms. In your name I pray, amen.